0: Start giving stuff away, and you just can't stop. That's, the gospel should be kind of like that, huh? Start giving it away, you just can't stop. Well, come on, man, did you, did you get a piece of bread? Do you want a piece of bread? Yeah? Does anybody know whose child this is? I'm going to give him a piece of bread, but that's all I've got. There you go. Okay. Now, do you have a parent out there somewhere? Right over there? Joseph, you going to go to your mom and dad? Or you can stay up here with me. You know, we were buddies the other week. We got to know each other, didn't we? All right. Well, you just stay right there with me then? I'm going to try to compete. <clears throat> All right. Joseph and I are going to share with you. You know, I had another privilege I had besides... My time up front here with Joseph this week. Another, uh, another, just real opportunity that I had is I, I I I got to be with a bunch of other pastors. I got to be in this, uh, this, this uh, thing where a bunch of us pastors got together and uh, we were talking about evangelism in a local church and what that looks like and what we can do and and that's that's important. Jesus said, make disciples, we're going, baptizing, teaching. Everything we do is about making disciples, and so. That seemed to be important enough. And that was good, it was very practical, it was helpful. I, I might talk some about that in the meeting as well. But but, real special part of that was for the second hour of it, after lunch, and they gave us bread there also, they, after lunch, we got, for about an hour, we got to hear from Louis Palau, his heart concerning evangelism. And now he learned, back in December, he learned that he has terminal lung cancer. Uh, he, he was telling us with, with joyful anticipation, not casually or flippantly, but with joyful anticipation and hope, he said, if, the, if God doesn't do something un, otherwise unexpected, I'm going to be with Jesus before Christmas. He said that the, the ticket has been paid for. I know the destination. I just don't know the departure time or gate yet. And uh, that's, a, that's a good hopeful way. And yet, with that clarity of his mortality, he, was, he said in the last six months, some things have become increasingly clear to him. And he had a list of seven that he wanted to talk to us about. And number one on his list, he said, was the increasing despair in our culture. The the increasing sense of hopelessness that is out there. The, his point the very next morning was horribly underscored by the school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas. Ten killed, another 13 injured. And, and one of the hallmarks of our nation historically has been this is a place of optimism and hope. In America, anyone can grow up to be British royalty anyone. It's amazing. <laughs> Except David. <laughs> that, that optimism, that hope, it, it, it flew. <laughs> He's still bitter about that, you see. <laughs> it that optimism, that hope, it flows out of the, the, um, the foundations of faith that our nation was founded on. Not that we were formed initially to be a theocratic Christian country, but that those who founded this place, those who came, had the courage to do so because of their faith in the true and living God. And that that fl- overflowed into the culture of our country. And it's had its effect, but the effect is waning because faith is more and more being excluded from the public discourse we've, we've, we've taught for generations now that we are mere products of evolutionary chance not a loving creator the latest answer to evolution's um, collapse as we learn more about genetics and DNA and there's all kinds of hurdles to how evolution could work the way that they thought it did, they've got new theories that are being brought in that still exclude the creator. You know what it is? How did life? How did life in this on this planet start? Life in this planet was seeded by alien life forms. Okay, I kid you not. This is the new theory. You know how they know? You know what what led them to this? How they? How how some scientists have begun to feel that this must be because? Well, have you ever looked at an octopus? Seriously, I kid you not. An octopus is a very strange cat. It's a very strange, dare I say, creature, and it it's, it 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 seems alien. There's some adaptability issues with with uh, with octopus and and other creatures like him that that suggest that they are so different that they must be somewhat alien. There must be something out of this planet that. We're getting, we're getting that crazy in our scientific approach to the origins of life because we could not, we could not bear with the idea that, that we were formed. As the psalmist, as the, Psalm 139, we, we referred to concerning jo, Jonah last week, where can I run from your presence, right? Psalm 139, which says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That you knit me together in my mother's womb. That's God's answer to where we came from. Where life on this planet came from. And there is purpose and there is meaning being created in the very image and for the purposes of a loving and sovereign God. And yet that, that all has been pushed to the side. And so with, with that foundation swept away and the input of media and video games where lives are literally blown up and reset as if it doesn't cost anything at all, it's no wonder the despair and the tragic acting out without the, even the full sense of the impact of those actions It's no surprise that developing adolescents don't see the real value of life or God's purpose in it, and so they destroy themselves and others as well. But when trouble comes, and trouble does come, where do we find hope rather than despair? What is it that steers us toward hope instead of despair? What is, there, whatever, what is it that turns us towards to, from panic to trust, from, from fear or frustration to faith? Troubles will come. The enemy, will, the enemy of our souls will try to use troubles to ruin our faith, and yet God would intervene in the midst of those troubles and he would turn that situation and he would use it instead for good. And somehow for glory. Well, how will we respond in the midst of these circumstances? Circumstances that can disappoint, circumstances that can dis, can create disillusion, circumstances that could lead to despair. Well, I think the rudder that turns us from despair toward hope, the rudder that turns us from panic to trust or from frustration to faith, the rudder that turns our hearts, that directs our hearts, at least one of those rudders is prayer. And I I suggest that to you because that's what we see happening in the book of Jonah in chapter 2. There's a turn in the story here. There's a significant difference that changes the outcome, and it happens when when Jonah joins I wanted to say join, so I said Jonah. But it's Jonah joins the prayer movement. You see, there's been a lot of prayer going on in Jonah chapter 1, hasn't there? Everybody's praying. There, there is a revival breaking out aboard that ship. They're just trying to figure out who should they pray to. Does anybody have an idea? And a prophet among them opt to stand up and say, I know who we should pray to, guys. Jonah's the only one on board not praying that day. And Jonah is soon not on board. Jonah's overboard. And we leave the end of chapter 1 with the men fearing God exceedingly and offering a vow of sacrifice to the Lord that they are going to fearfully, faithfully serve him. What happens to Jonah? Well, let's pick it up. In Jonah, actually in chapter 1, verse 17, because in the Hebrew text, verse 17 is the first verse of Jonah chapter 2. So in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, you'll find us, if you're in the Church Bible, on page 774. And let's read Jonah's prayer, and we'll see what happens when, when prayer goes deep. Jonah, from verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The the cell door slams closed. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, empty nothings, they forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Wow. Jonah has had a change of heart, and it happens. We see it happening as Jonah prays. The ending of the story in verse 16, we have the sailors that are there, right? The sailors are on the deck, and we're focusing on the sailors. Jonah's gone overboard. We watch what's happening with the sailors just long enough to figure that Jonah, by the way, has drowned. And yet, verse 17 comes along, and Jonah has been swallowed up by a great fish, and he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, now, when we, when we hear these swallowed by a fish, we're not sure what to do with that. I mean, maybe when Jonah's cast overboard and the sea so quickly calms, maybe Jonah did have a chance after all. Maybe he grabbed hold of some of that cargo and he's able to keep his head above water. Maybe, maybe he's actually able to kick, paddle, swim his way towards shore. Who knows? But then the fish comes along. Nope. Well, Jonah's gone. Jonah is not just swimming with the fishies. Jonah has become fish food, okay? Lights out for Jonah. It's got to be over. And yet, Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That's curious. Because three days and three nights in the ancient world was understood to be those who would hear the story would say, ah, three days, three nights, Jonah's going to the place of the dead. Jonah is going to Sheol, Hades. That's where the the bars are going to slam shut after him. That's what's happening. It takes three days and three nights to get there. That was understood. That was the cultural myth. And so then, they're reading the story this way, Jonah is going to his death. But it's just three days and three nights that Jonah is in the belly of the whale. That suggests, well, maybe he doesn't stay there. Maybe something else happens. I said whale. I meant fish. Sorry. Somebody was going to point that out to me later. Maybe after three days and three nights, maybe there's an entrance and an exit. There's a beginning and then there's an end of that ordeal. Is there some hope in there for Jonah? Can it be reversed. The time frame of three days and three nights also points out how long it took Jonah to pray. Jonah is stubborn. So if any of you have trouble there, if you're stubborn, anybody stubborn? Raise of hands. No? Oh yeah, there they are. Look at that. Bless you, you courageous creatures. Yes! Jonah was too and it only took Three days and three nights for God to break that stubbornness down and to turn his heart. There is hope. Look what God will do. I just hope it doesn't take what it took with Jonah. But three days and three nights, and then verse 1 of chapter 2 says that Jonah began to pray. And now as we look at this prayer, what do we see? Jonah prays well. This is a good prayer. There's a lot in this prayer. This isn't casual, flippant, off-the-cuff. Jonah has put a lot into this. It's composed in the belly of a fish, but for being composed inside a fish, this is quite a composition, right? When Jonah sinks deep, his prayer goes deep. It's poetic. It's profound. It's, it's, It's composed like a psalm. In fact, Hearing this this, uh, prayer, somebody who is familiar with Hebrew Psalms would say, oh, Jonah's been saved. They hear the first line and they know, oh, Jonah's been saved. How do they know that? This is a Thanksgiving psalm. It has a clear form, a normal outline. It looks like this. There's an introduction, verse 2, which says, I'm thanking God who delivered me. And then there's a description of the trouble and Jonah's going down. And there's a prayer for help I called out to the Lord. There's a description of the deliverance that the Lord has provided and there is a vow of praise. I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a thanksgiving psalm. Jonah is praying a psalm. It's now a psalm is somewhat generic. A psalm is not specific to the exact circumstances and I don't know, did Jonah write this psalm while he's there in the belly of the whale or are there lots of lines, lots of lines of Hebrew poetry that are coming back up in his mind that that God is provoking by his spirit that are surfacing now and that come out in his prayers. You know, I wrote a book about um, what we can learn from the preaching of of the prophets for, for preaching today and you wish I would learn something from that book. But, but the last chapter of the book actually was described, was, was, um, uh, the idea for it came from one of our elders here as we were, as we were walking along a forest trail talking about what I was going to be writing about and, and the idea came up in that conversation for the last chapter which had to do with continuing to preach like the prophets and how was it in such trouble the prophets continued and one of the keys was their prayers. And as I looked at at the prayers of the prophets, in their books, especially Jeremiah, psalms are leaking out all over in his prayer. I don't know if he's doing it intentionally or if he has so filled himself with the psalms that they leak out of him. I don't know if that's the case here in Jonah or not. Either Jonah has been immersed in the psalms and they are being, not unlike what will happen to Jonah later, they are being regurgitated in his prayer or... Jonah is composing a psalm himself. And the psalms are somewhat generic. They describe in poetic language the kind of circumstances. So you identify, your heart joins with a psalm when you're reading it. You say, oh, this is for me. And you could pray that. It's meant to be that way. It's meant to not be such a specific prayer to one's person's circumstances that others couldn't borrow it and pray it to. And oftentimes there's more in there than you knew how to pray. It's kind of like Mother's Day. What did you do last week? You went to the store and there was a whole section of greeting cards and you went to the section that said Mother's Day and you quickly just grabbed, a okay, Mother's Day card, okay, there's one, I grabbed that, yep, I can afford that and off you went to the checkout, Right. Oh, no, 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 you'd never get away with that. No, you first looked for one that it needed to look right. It needed to be attractive. It needed to be pretty. It needed to be nice in a way that would fit you. And mom, she'll like this. And then you were reading, and you read that one. You read that one. Oh, that's not quite it. No, maybe that one, but you, you keep looking. You go, you probably read a dozen different cards for the poem inside that it would say what you wanted to say in a way that you kind of would like to say it. But they say it better than you could, right? So you finally found, oh, I love the way this says it. So you took it and you redeemed that card. You bought it. You freed it from the marketplace and you brought it home. And then you took your card and you wrote in, to mom, love, Bob. No. No, you didn't do that. You said, well, now what am I going to write in the card? And you thought of what, some of you are feeling guilty now because you just wrote, to mom, love. But, But you wrote something else in the card, something, maybe a line or two. That would say in your own words, and and you gave some thought, some intentionality to it, right? That's Mother's Day cards. Prayer can be like that. We borrow in our prayer from what has already been said, what has already been lifted up in God's Word. Like in the Psalms, Jonah does that. And he brings that into his own situation. Or maybe you're in a situation, something like Jonah, and you could use some of his words in your prayer. Jonah may have known this psalm. Jonah may have composed it. That we don't know. We know the prophets were were creative, artistic wordsmiths. The point is that his, his prayer is well planned. It's well expressed. Jonah's prayer is not just in the deep. Jonah's prayer goes deep. Jonah prays well. There's powerful imagery. He confesses his separation. He expresses his hope in God's future restoration. I'm driven away from your sight, and yet I will look on your holy temple. What Jonah is praying for himself is actually true of Israel. The northern kingdom has no more access to the temple in Jerusalem that belongs to Judah and the southern kingdom. They've been separated. They've been cut off, and yet... There is a hope within Israel that one day they will again, by God's working, have access again to worship him at his temple in Jerusalem. Jonah is praying something much bigger than himself in his prayer. Jonah prays well. Our tendency in American, egalitarian, everybody's equal kind of church, our tendency is to approach God very authentically, genuinely, just me as me, casually, okay? We we, we can tend to approach God carelessly, casually. It's true that God's Word tells us that we can approach His throne of grace boldly and confidently, confident in our access, confident in God's embrace of us. We don't come wondering if God will accept us or not, if He'll hear us or not but it doesn't say anything about coming casually. It talks about coming with humility, coming joyfully, not casually or carelessly. Now, I don't intend to say that our prayers should be stiff and formal, planned and canned. What I, what I want to say is that Jonah's prayer is certainly genuine, but it also is very well expressed, and ours can be too. We can include more in our praying than we might carelessly do. Our prayers can express our own souls and what we want for ourselves, what we want for others, even more than we realize. If we give some pause, some thought to our words, if we'll use God's well-expressed word in our prayer, what does that look like? What can we learn about praying well from Jonah's prayer? First of all, I want to say is use God's Word in your prayer. Use God's Word in your words, okay? Like that Mother's Day card, use better words in the midst of your words. Several months ago, we gave out a small book here at the church. It was called Praying the Bible. And the whole thrust of that book, it could have been three pages, really. They had to put more pages than that so they could have a book to sell. But but the point was really simple. Open up the Bible. Start with the psalm. The psalm is a great place because they're prayers. And as you read line by line, verse by verse, as you read the psalm, what surfaces in your mind, what comes to your mind, pray in relation to what comes to your mind as you're reading. Let God's word provoke you to prayer. So I don't know what I should pray about. Well, let's just start reading and whatever comes to mind, those are the things as I read, what comes to mind, that's where I'll pray praying the Bible. The early church brought God's Word into their prayers. They used their Bible in their praying. Let me give you an example of this. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, two things happened. First of all, they lifted their voices together to God in the midst of of trouble, in the midst of outside stress and pressure upon them, saying, you people stop talking about Jesus so much. You're going to pay a price if you don't. They lifted up their voices together to God and they said, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Well, they're getting kind of formal there, aren't they? They're getting kind of high churchy. Come on, we're Baptist. We're kind of community church, Bible church background. We don't get so high church, liturgical in our praying. Don't they, why are they, are they trying to remind somebody that this is true? They're probably reminding themselves of who God really is because troubles can make you forget that. And so they're reminding themselves together as they're praying of who it is that they're praying to. Truth from Scripture they bring into their prayer. And then they actually quote one of the Psalms, Psalm 2, directly. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There are gathered. They take that truth of Psalm 2, what is described in Psalm 2, and they say, that's what's happening here. They take the psalm that parallels their circumstance, and they apply that psalm in prayer to their prayer in the circumstance. So God's church at the very beginning, just after the day of Pentecost, after they all ate bread, just after Pentecost, they, they, they used God's Word in their words In prayer, they gave thought to pray well. John Piper, when he talks about, how do I pray the Bible? He says, well, in the Bible, I find, when I'm reading the Bible, I find typically one of four things. When I'm reading, generally, there's one of four things that God is showing me out of the Bible. Here they are. God is showing us something about God, and that is something that we can praise Him for. That's how that Acts 4 prayer started. They started praising God for who He had revealed Himself to be. And then, he says, God's Word shows us something that God has done for us. And there's a prayer of thanksgiving. We give thanks to God. We thank God for what he has done, especially the life he has given us in Jesus Christ. The the confident assurance we have that God will be faithful, that he will uphold us and meet our needs. He'll provide for us. He'll answer this. He'll strengthen me in that and I give thanks to him for that. As we read our Bibles, we find that it'll sometimes confront us. It'll put its finger on our chest and we can... Pray in confession for what God's Word reveals to us. We find that God's Word invites us, it calls us, it exhorts us into a new way to live. But I can't do that on my own. And I'm pressed to ask God's help in prayer for living in His strength and by His grace in this direction. So as we read in the Bible, wherever it's taking us, it's taking us into prayer. We, re- we respond in prayer to what we are reading, and you can appropriate a prayer in the Bible. You can take a prayer that's in the Bible, and you can make it yours. For instance, I think I have, I, I have one of these on the, on the insert. On the, on the back of the insert, you have an insert in your bulletin that you can take notes on or kind of follow my outline, but in the midst of that insert, on the back, I have homework. I have considering further, going deeper, and on that back end, under number two, there's a prayer from Colossians chapter one. And this is an example of, add a few blanks in there, and you can take Paul's prayer for Christians in Colossae. You say, well, we're not in Colossae. We're going to shift it. We're going to make this, not Paul's prayer for Colossae, we're going to make this Gary's prayer for Brush Prairie, or for somebody here, or we can make it our prayer for a Christian in Santa Fe, Texas whose life has been turned upside down and their faith could be, could be shaken by the horror that they're living through now, the evil that they have seen. I'm going I'm to demonstrate how, how, how I would use a fill-in-the-blank prayer like this, an adaptation of a Bible prayer into somebody's circumstance. I'm going to imagine that, and then after we've prayed that way together, I'm going to invite you just to pause and take the same prayer and put somebody into it and pray for them. Father, I imagine a, a fellow brother in Christ in Santa Fe, Texas, that I, I, know, I know they are there in the city and, and are impacted. Lord, they have been troubled by what is happening. Maybe it touched very close to their own family. If not, then those they know. And Lord, I pray that you would fill them with a knowledge of your will. You'd give them spiritual wisdom and understanding. You help them to see the bigger picture, that your hand truly is at work in the face of evil. Lord, that that, uh, this brother in Christ would be able to walk worthy in faith toward you in the midst of this trouble. Lord, help him to choose the things that he does and, and things that he says and how he has conversations with others now, Lord, in ways that will please you that, Lord, you'd bear fruit. You give him the opportunity, Lord, to do good works and to help and encourage others at a time when it's so needed. Lord, help this brother to increase in his knowledge of you even in the midst of these circumstances. Lord, would you strengthen this man with with your power according to your glorious might. Father, he might be shaken even in confidence in you. Lord, would you fill up his his confidence, his trust in you, would you give him endurance and patience in his faith in joy, even in the midst of this tragedy, Lord, would you help him to give thanks to you as father that you are father, and in the midst of evil that you have qualified him and others to be participants together, to be removed, delivered from darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son, a kingdom we don't yet see, but we long for it. Lord, would you strengthen his hearts and others with him for, toward that day. Lord, remind them of redemption. Remind them of the forgiveness of sin. Lord, remind them that even when we see evil, it reminds us of what is wrong with humanity and how deep your forgiveness can go. Father, in your will and in your works, would you help him to live in your forgiveness and in his, in his true identity in Jesus, even when his confidence has been shaken. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take Paul's prayer or one of the other prayers in Scripture. You can adapt it to somebody. I want, to, I want us to pause. Maybe you might take just the first half of that prayer. Maybe you'll take the second half. Maybe the whole thing. But I want to give us... A minute or two right now to just step into this, to pause and to pray for somebody. Take somebody that's on your heart now, put their name in the midst of this, their circumstance as you know it in the midst of this. This prayer in Colossians 1. Pray for them. Let's pray. Amen. We can bring the Word of God into our words to God, we can pray well. Praying for someone is a good thing. Praying God's word, God's will for someone helps us to go deeper in prayer. Praying for someone, praying for someone, even praying with someone also helps us to pray better. One of the things we notice about Jonah chapter 2 is that we like Jonah better in Jonah chapter 2, don't we? Don't we find that we like, as the character develops in the story, we like the Jonah of chapter 2 better than we liked the Jonah earlier in chapter 1? Isn't that true? In mean, chapter 1, he was, he was kind of petty. He was very stubborn. He wanted his own way. He rebels against God. He won't even speak up for God until he's forced to. He doesn't join the others in prayer. He doesn't show them who they could pray to. Jonah is pretty useless in Jonah chapter 1. We're not very impressed. We wouldn't invite him over for dinner. We wouldn't invite him to lead our Bible study. Now, Jonah chapter 2, we're starting to see something new. We're seeing a tenderness of heart. We're seeing an owning of sin. We're seeing, we're seeing some confession. We're certainly seeing hope in God again. And he yields his will to God. Salvation doesn't belong to Jonah. Salvation belongs to God. We like Jonah better in chapter 2. Then we liked him in chapter 1, don't we? And what happened? I mean, Jonah smells much worse in chapter 2. And yet we like him better. Why is that? We've listened in on his prayer. You know, one of the things that will join you to somebody, it's hard to continue in animosity against somebody when you're praying for them. Okay? Pray for your enemies. And, and it's, it's also, you find yourself drawing closer to people that you pray with. Prayer is an intimacy in communication. It's a closeness, there's a genuineness, there's an opening of hearts together that when you find a way that you get together with others and pray with them, when you pray with them, you will find yourself growing closer with them. You'll be strengthened in that fellowship, that sharing together in faith in prayer. It's one of the reasons we talk about small groups, classes, community groups, wherever that you can get together with us, a, with, a, with a smaller group of believers that you can share life and pray together because that's where you grow together. If we want to be a church that's growing together, we have to be a church that is praying together. We'll pray better as we're praying together. It's important in a divisive era where there's a lot of different issues and circumstances that can pull us apart from one another. It's important in a divisive era that we pray together, we join our hearts together in a common pursuit of God's will in God's purposes. Aligning our will to God's will. That moves us along from the idea of praying better By praying together to a thought about what is the attitude of my prayer. Because the book of Jonah is all about attitude, isn't it? There's a lot of attitude and attitude adjustment that's going on here. Well, how does Jonah's attitude shift? As we come to the end of chapter two, we find Jonah praying in confident submission. Now, I chose those words very intentionally pray in confident submission. I take this point from the end of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is not just agreeing that, that God is the source of salvation, that salvation comes from God. Jonah is saying that God initiates it and God owns it. Therefore, God can and will be merciful to whom he will be merciful. God can be compassionate to whom God will be compassionate because salvation belongs to God. It's his. You know, I have a saying: something that's really not my deal; it's really not my issue to solve. I don't have to worry about it because it doesn't belong to me. I say, "Not my circus, so not my monkeys." Okay, not my circus, not my monkeys. I lean on that phrase. You'll hear me say it here and here and there, roundabout. Well, I would also then have to say, "Not my kingdom, not my prerogative." didn 't Jesus teach us to pray just like He taught us to pray together? He taught us to pray together by saying, Lead us not into temptation, not me, Lord, give us this daily bread our, our, this day our daily bread, not give me my bread but, So he taught us to pray us. He taught us to pray together. And he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom, not my will. Not my kingdom, not my preference. You see? It's God's preference. It's God's prerogative. It's God's purposes that we seek. One of the reasons we pray is not to ask God for the stuff I want, but is to align my heart in his direction. To pray in confident submission. Because confident submission. Submission because God is sovereign. God's in charge. I'm not in charge. God is sovereign, so I will submit. Confident submission because God is also faithful. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols... They forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay because salvation belongs to the Lord. They are, they are empty nothings, useless idols. They cannot help, but God can help and God will help. He is sovereignly able and he is he is faithful. He is covenantally faithful to his people and to his promise. So you can say, that no matter what's going on, God has got this. No matter what this is, He is sovereign. He has got this. And not only that, He has got us in it. God will keep us. There's this balance in this close of, of the book of Jonah, a, t- a balance of the tension between God's sovereignty and thus our confident submission. Jonah can submit because of who God is. He rehearses in the prayer, first of all, who God is, and that leads him to submit. There's this balance between sovereignty and our will. God is working, and yet we must respond. I got a little creative with my artwork. There the sailors are in the ship, and the storm comes, and Jonah's down below, and they're sailing, and they're sailing away from Nineveh. Now you can tell, I've been to Israel. I know the lay of the land. I know the Sea of Galilee's up there, the Dead Sea's down there, the Jordan River between them, and there's the coast. Some of you say, well, you left out Mount Carmel. Tough it. This is simple. All right. But the boat is going away from Israel, because the boat is going toward Tarshish, away from Nineveh, right? The boat is going that way. But Jonah's not on the boat anymore, is he? Nope, Jonah was hurled into the sea. And when Jonah was hurled into the sea, and a great fish swallowed him up. And for three days he stews inside that fish. For three days and three nights he stews inside that fish and then he prays. Now for three days while Jonah stews, what is the fish doing? I guarantee you the fish is not sitting still. How do I know that? Fish have to move to breathe. The water has to flow over their gills. Fresh, more water has to keep coming. The fish is swimming. Okay? What direction is the fish swimming? Do you know? That's where my artwork comes in again. There's Jonah and his fish, and the fish is going back the other direction. Why? Because he he, he burps him back up onto dry land, and I think it's not even down to Joppa. It's probably further north, so he just goes right in from Caesarea area, right down the Jezreel Valley, and off his way to Nineveh. Off he goes. He's closer now than he was when he was at Joppa. And so the fish has got to get back to dry land. The three days that Jonah is stewing, the fish is swimming. And yet Jonah's circumstances haven't changed at all. Jonah's location has not moved at all. Jonah's location, Jonah's situation and circumstance will not change until Jonah prays and says, salvation belongs to God. But The the whole fish, the whole container of Jonah's circumstances has been moving closer and closer to Nineveh, has been moving along in God's purpose the whole time, though Jonah sees none of that. Jonah has no realization, no framework for what is happening outside of his fishy little world. But God is still moving. And God is moving Jonah in ways that Jonah doesn't even realize, just like the sovereign God who is outside of time and space is moving with us even while he waits for you to respond. God is working. God is sovereignly moving. God is advancing his purpose, and yet he does that with Jonah without violating Jonah's will, waiting for Jonah. But once Jonah prays and once Jonah reaches that point, the fish burps him up and he's already at the dry land, ready to go. God has been sovereignly working even while God is patiently waiting. All right? But the takeaway for you and I, there's something in salvation there that God has been working, God has been moving in the midst of calling you to Himself or in the midst of calling somebody close to you to Him in faith. God has been actively working all along. Salvation belongs to God, God is in this, and yet He waits for you to respond. The one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. God is not violating anybody's free will, even while he moves the fish. Now, you may say, well, that's just fine, but it's up to me, not God. I'm staying in the fish. Well, okay. Okay. You do have a limited time you can stay in the fish. That's just the reality of life. But God is moving you even while God is waiting for you and calling you. That's my point. God is working. God is sovereign. Salvation belongs to God, and he would give it to you. What do you do with it? Let's pray. Father, we are thrilled in our minds at how God works with Jonah. And Lord, yet we are thrilled that uh, somebody whom we thought so little of in chapter 1 would pray so well in chapter 2. Lord, we need that. We need to pray well. We need to pray together. We need to, Lord, uh, let your word inform our prayers. Let your word seed our prayers so that, Lord, our will aligns with you that we pray in confident submission. Father, that confident submission in the sov- to the sovereign God the sovereign, faithful God begins in salvation. And Lord, that could be true for somebody right here, there have been circumstances all around their life, maybe in their family, maybe among friends, maybe with what's been going on at work or school or, or in relationship to somebody. There have been circumstances going on that you would use to press them toward yourself. And yet nothing happens in their salvation. At the same time as you are working, nothing happens in their salvation until they believe. Until they confess with their own heart and mouth, I believe in Jesus who loved me and died for me. I trust him for eternal life. God, would you do that this morning? Lord, maybe would you uh, increase the pressure in the fish? Lord, would you press upon their heart right now by your Spirit that this would be the day that they would say, the salvation that belongs to God, he has now given to me because I trust him. I trust Jesus as my Savior. Father, would would you do that through us? Father, would you do that for the people that we pray for? Father, would you do that in the ministry of this church? Lord, in the gifts that are given and offering now for ministry in and to our community, Father, out of these gifts, out of this sacrifice, out of vows that are fulfilled, Lord, would you do your work of wonderful salvation all around us? We ask it in Jesus' name. And all who agree said,